Well, again, hello, everybody. Today, we are going to be talking about cause and effect. Cause and effect. You all know what this is. It's where there is something that transpires. That's a cause, and it, it, it causes something else to happen. There's an effect that comes along with it. That's what we're going to be thinking about today. If you eat Brewster's every day, you're going to get huge enjoyment out of it, right? Yeah. If you, if you send your children to Sun Zone, they are going to have an amazing time, cause and effect. If you leave your dog out during your personal fireworks, things could get dangerous. <laughs> Almost got him. All right, yeah, so uh, there, there's a cause and effect to things. And, and tech, actually today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at some cause and effect as it relates to the Apostle Paul and uh, the circumstance that we find himself in. And he was sharing some cause and effect relationship that we see in the text that we're going to be looking at today. And he shared it with the first century church in the city of Rome. And that's what the book of Romans is all about. And what I'd invite you to do is open up to the passage where we can find this. And where we find it is in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33 to the end of that chapter. Now, I know that most of you or many of you have brought your scripture journals that we handed out or we've been handing out all the way along in this series. If you haven't gotten one of those yet, it's still not too late. We're going to be kicking off the last section of the book of Romans, chapters 12 through 16, uh, very shortly, and there is so much there. It's kind of a transition that happens. In fact, today we, we close out a whole section of the book of Romans, and it's all kind of been building to what we're going to see today, and then it kicks off kind of a very, very much practical section, all right? One where we, a pragmatic section, one where we can see what it is that Paul would be calling us to, that God would be calling us to, because of all of the things that we've seen. And so it's been building. So if you haven't gotten one of these yet, it's still worth picking one up, and they are at the Information Center, and you can grab one of those after the service. But otherwise, open up. Maybe you brought a Bible along with you. You can open up to Romans chapter 11, and there is an outline inside of the Pathway Notes. You can follow along, and as you're finding your way there, welcome to all of you who are listening in and other places online, perhaps today or in our classic service or our, our moon campus. This is going to be an important, very important passage to kind of come to understand where Paul's mind is, where his head is in this. And he's going to say there's been, there's been a great cause, and today we're going to see the effect of that in his life. We've been studying our way through this book of Romans over the course of the last several weeks in this series, Romans, Grace Changes Everything. We've been seeing the grace of God and that how that impacts or should impact the way that we see God, the way that we respond to all that God has done, and specifically, in this case, respond to the gospel message through the grace that God has provided for us and that that transforms who we are and where we're going. So we have been in this series and uh, we're going to continue to make our way all the way to the end of this book. Now the book of Romans to this point has been very deep in theology, but today we're going to see a big transition because theology is going to turn to doxology today. Here where Paul is in his 
mindset and his working us through what's going on to him, what he's writing to these Christians in Rome. It turns from doxology, which has been very heavy up to this point, and now he's turning to doxology. Doxology is simply praise to God. And it's what's going on in Paul's mind here, and we're going to see why. And we're going to see what implications that can and should have for us as well as we dig into what he is saying. In fact, there are a few different cause and effect relationships that we can pull out of what Paul is, is writing here just in, these, just in these few verses that we're going to look at, just four verses today that we're going to be digging into, but very important verses. So I'm going to try to take us through each of these different facets to this doxology. And the first one that we see on his part is this. It's candid exclamation. All right? Candid exclamation. If you want to jot these things down or transfer them over into your, your scripture journal, this would be a great way to start. Candid ex- exclamation. I love the way that Paul gets after it here in verse 33 and following. I want you to look at this. I just want to read our whole passage for today, and uh, it'll give you the flavor for where Paul is in his mind and what's going on. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is a beautiful declaration of praise that is coming from Paul. And I love the way that he starts because he could have said, all right, everybody, I want you to consider the significance of what God has done, the depth of what he's done. But that's not how he starts. What he starts, the way he begins is with these words. He says, oh, the depth. Oh, the depth of it all. You can see there's emotion in this. That's going on in his mind. This is, this is deep, and it adds some significance to what is going on here. Now, this kind of idea, oh, the depth, um, starting the phrase with this exclamation tells us something extra about what's going on in, in Paul's mind. My, I had a grandmother that would always, not always, but would oftentimes start sentences in the same way, oh, this. So you'd walk into the room, and she'd be like, oh, that shirt you have on. And I'd be like, Graham, it's a blue T-shirt. Or she'd say, oh, the heights to which you've grown. Say, Graham, I've been this height for 20 years. But she was just a very emotional sort of person, and she expressed herself in that way. Oh, this, and oh, that. And, and, And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, oh, the depth. There's, there's great emotion in what he is sharing right here. Now, you may have some idea of who Paul is and sort of the nature of Paul's um, being and uh, his, his emotional status because, because you think about Paul and what do you think? You think theology. You think deep and you think rich and you think difficult concepts and you think knowledge and you think this guy was a Pharisee and all of these things. And so you, you kind of get this picture of this guy who's pretty even keel, even stoic. Oftentimes you would think that you can't really tell what he's thinking or what he's feeling. So you might say he's a guy, <laughs> right? Good, no amens from the women. That's what I was hoping for right there, all right? No amens on that particular score. But here, what we have, there's no doubt that he's excited about what he's saying here. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. This is a spontaneous burst of praise that's coming from him. Now, this praise didn't just come out of nowhere. 
for 11 chapters now, Paul has been describing the problem of sin. He's been describing the separation that mankind has from God. But he doesn't leave us there, and he knows that God doesn't leave us there, so Paul doesn't either. He goes on with those things, sort of his underlying principles or tenets of what's happening. He says, but in the midst of that, God provided God came and provided the gospel, which speaks of Jesus going to the cross. It speaks of his glorious resurrection and victory over sin. It speaks of grace. Paul tells us all about the mercy of God. He tells us about the doctrines of election and, and predestination, and he tells us about sanctification. He tells us about justification, which is all about being declared righteous, and he says in the context of all of how bad things were for us, he said, God has provided all of these things on your behalf. And he says this is something to worship and this is something to praise God over. In Paul's mind, the goodness and compassion of God has just been building and it's been building and it's been building for all of these chapters. And now we get all the way to the end of all of these things that he's saying and his praise just bursts forth. That's what's going on here. That's what Paul is saying. It's that beautiful. It's that powerful. Our family was on a trip. We went to Switzerland on one occasion, and uh, it was spectacular. It's a beautiful, beautiful place to go and to visit. If you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. On one occasion, we wanted to get to the top of the highest mountain in the whole region. And so we went on our way, and it required some hiking, and it required going on this train that was like on this cliff edge, and we thought we were going to fall in. And it required going on these different cable cars to get our way all the way up to the very top. And, and uh, they were kind of scary cable cars because there was a long, long distance, hundreds and hundreds of yards between the different stanchions. And so you spent half your time just sort of taking in the view and seeing all these new peaks that were popping up as you got higher and higher and higher and seeing the beauty of it and spending the other half of the time thinking you were going to plummet hundreds of feet to your death as soon as that cable broke right? Because uh, that's kind of how we tend to think pessimistically sometimes. But we just kept going up higher and higher and higher. And finally, we made our way up as we were seeing all the different scenery. And it was just getting better and better and better. We got all the way up to the top as it's building and building. We finally get up to the top. We get out. We have the relief. We didn't die. And we're looking around. And it's like everybody was just trying to find the, the right words to express the beauty of all that we were seeing. It's like, this is incredible. This is fascinating. This is amazing. There was just kind of this spontaneous burst of praise that came out. It had been building and building, and finally it was released. And that's what Paul is doing. It's been building and building. All of these things that he's saying, God did this, and God has done that. God has met us in our need and when we were hopeless, and when we were lost, God provided this, and then, then we were stuck in our sin, and God provided this, and it's just been building for all of these chapters, and Paul can't keep it in any longer, and he bursts forth in this praise. This is going on for Paul. Summarizing the journey of these chapters, he comes out then with some of these candid exclamations. And verse 33 gives us two of them. And I want to show both of them to you. The first of them is at the beginning of verse 33. He writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of 
God. Paul is running over and over in his mind all of the ways that God has shown his wisdom and, and knowledge. I mean, who else could come up with taking the fall of mankind and the, and the rejection of Israel, that they rejected all of God's plan, and, and then the rejection of Jesus, and work all of that together to bring salvation to mankind? It's like, who could do that? Or last week we looked at how, how the gospel went to the Jews and some received it and many pushed it away and, and then because of that the gospel goes over to the Gentiles and, and many of them received Christ and because of so many of them the Jews ended up getting jealous again and now the pendulum swings back toward them and, and many of them have and will come to faith in, in large numbers. That's happened and will continue to happen as we come to the conclusion of our days here on this earth. That's what the Scriptures tell us all about. And how could, how could anybody think of, of a plan that would accomplish all of those things? Paul is saying, how great is the wisdom and the knowledge of God that He would work out these sorts of things. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. That's amazing, but Paul then goes on and adds right away another candid exclamation at the end of verse 33. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For all the things that Paul has described to us to try to help us to understand who God is and the things that he has done, he's acknowledging here that there are still a bunch of other things that he doesn't understand things that are beyond his ability to grasp. He's the one who's been teaching us all of these things, all of this doctrine. And now here he says, you know, but there are things that I don't understand. But here's the thing about it. I want you to notice that that doesn't bother him at all. He's not tripped up by that. His faith doesn't shrink because he doesn't understand everything that is going on here. Doesn't steal anything away from his worship and his praise. In fact, it inspires it. A God whose ways and nature and knowledge are completely understandable to all of us isn't all that much of a God, really, is it? If he's no further beyond what our minds can conceive of, exactly how much is there to worship and to Door. If all of us could conceive of all of the same things, he says this isn't a problem. Instead, we can praise him for what he's revealed and certainly because of his mercy and because of his grace and because of his, his love and his kindness that he's extended to us. There's plenty that we know that gives us the opportunity and the inclination to worship him even if there are some things that in our finite minds we can't understand. It doesn't need to be something that steals from us the ability or the desire to worship God because of all that He's accomplished on our behalf. But there are some things that are beyond what our minds can comprehend. And that's okay. One of my daughters just had an article published in a medical journal. And trying to be a supportive dad, I read it. <laughs> yeah, you, you see where this is going. But I didn't comprehend it all. It's like, I know that this is English, but uh, I don't understand what all of this is, is saying. But the problem wasn't hers. The problem was mine. It was my inability to grasp all of what was being said in that particular article. But I never once thought to write an angry letter to the publisher and say, how could you do that? I never wrote a, a nasty email back to my daughter and said, what is all of this? 
How could you ever write these sorts of things? Not at all, but sometimes that's what we do with God. There are things that we might not completely understand, and now we're blaming God for the fact that we can't quite get it. We feel that we, if we're really going to praise and worship God, then we have to understand everything. And if there's something that is troubling us in our minds because we can't quite figure out why God did that or why he didn't do this, if our, if our standard, if our measure is always to fully understand before we can give ourselves over to God, before we can offer praise, before we can commit ourselves fully to him, then we're always going to be on the outside because you're never going to get there. Now, you can blame that on God if you want to, but you're making that choice for the separation and the distance that you're experiencing from God. God's methods do not need to conform to your preconceptions. And you wouldn't want it to, because if they do, then God is being diminished. We need to recognize that. This is the New Testament equivalent of Isaiah's words from the Old Testament where he wrote, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's not that God's been stingy in what he's choosing to reveal to us. Paul is offered lots of deep theology and helped us to understand so much about the nature and the character of God. Other scripture writers have done the same thing, yet even after being filled up with all of that, Paul says there's still more to know, and that's a good thing. That's a very good thing, and that leads him to worship and he's, as he worships here in this doxology at the end of chapter 11, there's some principles that we can see about how we can and should worship. And I want to try to pull these out for us as well. So there might be something that we can take from this place, some principles of worship based on what we see in Paul's worship right here. All right? So one principle of worship connected to this first point of candid expression is this, is that genuine worship doesn't require full understanding. This is so important. Genuine worship doesn't require full understanding. There are definitely times when I don't understand why circumstances turn out the way that they do or why God doesn't answer a prayer in a particular way that seems to me like that would be in everybody's best interest. It's not even that it's just in mine but not theirs or theirs but not mine and so yeah I can see why God might be having some trouble deciding but it's like that's in everybody's best interest. Why didn't it happen? These are questions that come up, things that we don't completely get, or why some of the most faithful people seem to be the ones to get the worst diseases. Why is that? Why does one person die too young and another one lives to old age? Why is that? I don't get all of that, but I do know that even the worst things we can experience aren't as bad as what they could be. Not as bad as what they should be. What should they be? What we all deserve is absolute separation from God. We all deserve to be just left in our sin and to experience the, the fullness of the wrath and judgment of God. But he chooses to make something else available to us. I once had someone who was dying of cancer, a horrific death. It was ugly. It was so difficult to see happen. And in talking to her, 
And just asking her about the whole circumstance, she said, you know what, Pastor? The situation is like this. I don't ask the question, why did I get cancer? The question in my mind is, why did I get mercy? Why did I get God's grace? Why has he provided for me? It's not something that I ever deserved. She was saying that God's blessing far outweighed her circumstance. There wasn't bitterness on her part. She recognized the true nature of where she stood in relationship to a holy God. And she was looking forward to the blessing that he ultimately had provided in her salvation. And because of it, she worshiped. She saw as we can too that there's plenty of evidence in what we can know about God and who He is and what He's done in the gospel and the cross to cause our praise to rise, her praise to rise loud and strong, even if we don't understand everything that's going on around us. So Paul then goes on, He's, he talks about another effect that comes from the cause of God's activity, and it's this, it's humble affirmation. This is really a continuation of Paul celebrating the unmatched nature and activity of God he was just talking about. And in this case, he borrows a couple of Old Testament passages to help him to make his point. He borrows from Isaiah 40 and then Job 41. In our passage in Romans 11, it comes in verse 34. If you want to look at it, he writes, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Are you ever tempted to think, if, if I were in charge, I would have done it differently? Now, you'd probably not say that out loud, but sort of internally, it's like, I don't think things should have come down the way that they did. I think it should have been different. And this is what I think ought to have happened? Or do you ever find yourself or have you found yourself pushing yourself away from God and maybe away for a period of days or months or years because you didn't believe that God acted fairly or justly toward you or toward somebody else? We're taking on a mindset which quite frankly is an arrogant mindset that we know better than God and that he really should have acted the way that I think that he should have acted instead of what Paul is talking about, which is this humble affirmation. Paul says it's crazy to think that we know the mind of God better than he who is the one carrying it out, who sees all things and who created all things to begin with. He says that's, that's ludicrous that that would be the case. Or that somehow, these are the words he's using, quoting from the Old Testament, he says that somehow we are a counselor for God to suggest that God, this is the way that you should have done it. Or he says that there's anything at all that we could, could give to God that exceeds what it is that God has given to us. Could he possibly give something that is of greater value than salvation? Not to mention life itself. To mention eternal life itself. It's crazy to think that you've done something that would put God in your debt. None of us have anything to offer that is greater than God's blessing to us. However, that's not to say that you don't have anything to bring. 
And that brings us actually to the the next principle of worship that he shares with us here, and it is this, that genuine worship is centered in humility. Genuine worship is centered in humility. What we have to offer is ourselves and our devotion and a humble heart that seeks to bless others, that looks beyond ourselves and seeks to lift God up, seeks to lift other people up at the same time. Imagine a young child who wants to bless his mom. He knows that she really needs a new car. So he goes to his piggy bank and he breaks it open and he gets everything out of it and he puts it in an envelope with a note to mom that says to buy you a new car. And included inside is $23.12. When it comes to that gift being able to provide for what he thought that it might, it basically can do nothing at all. But when it comes to providing blessing to mom, it means everything. It means everything. And that's how it is with our worship to God as well. We can't give a gift big enough that would provide for any need that God has. But when we give of ourselves sacrificially, of our gifts and our talents and our time and our resources, it means everything. Because we're humbling ourselves before a holy God and we're providing Him with that which brings Him glory. Then there's one more effect that comes from the cause of God's activity, and it is reverent declaration. Here's the way Paul concludes this doxology, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Let's break that down here for just a second. He says, from him are all things. There's nothing that we have, including life itself or the blessings that we have experienced in this life. There's nothing that we have that hasn't come from the hand of God. In some fashion, in some form, even it just, if even it just goes back to the fact that he's the one who gave us life itself, that we might enjoy the circumstances that we have been placed in. All of it has come from him, he says. He also says, through him are all things. God is the agent by which all things are created by which life itself is sustained, by which promises that have been made are carried out. We cannot sustain those things on our own. We cannot cause them to come into existence on our own. It is something that God does on our behalf. It is through Him, He says. And then there's one more aspect to it, and it's to Him are all things. Another important piece of this verse. That means that the things that he has done in our world or on the cross and in people through salvation and justification are ultimately to the end of his glory. The things that God has done are intended to demonstrate for us, to show us the nature and the character of God. That we might see his glory. That we might worship and praise him for his glory. It's ludicrous to think that, yeah, well, I came to faith in Jesus and and I responded to the gospel and, and so somebody ought to praise me because I made that good choice. No, all of the glory is 
to him as well. Then Paul fittingly wraps it up with this statement at the end of verse 36, to him be glory forever, amen. God's glory should be the desire that is on our hearts and minds and all that we say and do. It should be front and center in the decisions that we make when it comes to, to purity and dating. When it comes to choosing the school we're going to go to. When it comes to choosing a spouse. When it comes to raising our family or, or spending our money or spending our time in, in all that we do, in all of life. We need to ask this question, is... is the priority that by which I'm living that which celebrates what God has done, who God is in my life? Am I giving Him glory in the way that I live my life day by day, the conversations I have, the interactions I have with people, the choices that I'm making? If there's a no that kind of pops up in your head, I would just ask the question, where would be an area where you could move yourself more into conformity of, of an area of your life where you could move it into the direction of having it give glory to God? What would that be? Can you do that today, tomorrow, all week, all life? And it leads to another principle of worship, and it's this, that genuine worship focuses on who God is. Genuine worship focuses on who God is. This whole doxology is praise to God for who He is. It's not focused on Paul's circumstance, and it's not predicated on things going well in order that those things have to happen for Him to worship. It's all too easy to fall into the trap of letting our feelings drive our praise. You see, here's the thing. There's always going to be a danger. There's always going to be a danger in letting your emotion drive your devotion. It's always going to be a danger in letting your emotion drive your devotion. That's because it means that you're only able to worship when things are going well. If I have to feel like I want to worship, we're going to be totally limited in our ability to worship because things aren't, you're not always going to feel like things are going well. Principle of genuine worship is that we worship simply because of who God is. Now, that's not to say that there shouldn't be impulses to worship when something good happens in your life. There should be. Then you should enter in. But you don't ever want to find yourself stuck in the place where it's only when good things happen that you find yourself able to worship. That you can worship even when you don't understand. That you can worship even when circumstances don't seem to be working out according to the way that you would desire them to work out. Job himself demonstrated this principle. Job, who experienced such horrific trials, he wrote this, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Regardless of what has happened, he's given blessing or something has diminished my life in some way. From my perspective, blessed be the name of the Lord. He says genuine worship focuses on who God is. And then there's one more bonus principle of worship here as we consider all of what this passage says. And the last of them is this, that genuine worship should spring from all study of the Bible. This is important. This is one that might challenge you a little bit. Genuine worship should spring from all study of the Bible. It's interesting to see this extensive journey that Paul has taken us on for 11 chapters of doctrine and truth. 
but it reaches its pinnacle in praise. All of these things we've seen, all of these things that we've learned, all of these reasons to worship God, and that's where Paul allows it to all build to. Spiritual growth is not primarily about gaining more knowledge about the Bible, about stories in the Bible or facts in the Bible or details about the Bible. There's nothing wrong with studying. Certainly we should do that. I love to do that. But there is something wrong if it doesn't lead us to praise and worship. If all of your study just ends in study, now you know more then you've stopped too soon because here's the thing. The point of the Bible is not to lead you to more information, but more adoration. The information that you get in the Scriptures is telling you about a holy God. In order to have appropriate relationship with that holy God, we need to lift, up, lift Him up in worship and in adoration. Sometimes I'll have somebody say to me, they'll, they'll come up and they'll say, you know what, I wish we could just have the full hour of Bible teaching and not worry about the songs. Now certainly worship is more than just the singing. It's more than just the songs. There's no doubt about that. But when we just stand and refuse to engage our voices or engage our hearts, or our hands, or when we're moving our lips but our minds really are not in the things that we are saying with those lips, we're mi missing the opportunity to worship and adore, to praise God or what we're saying here, we're missing the opportunity for reverent declaration to give glory to God. There is something deeply flawed about purely academic interest in God. Something deeply flawed. God is not an appropriate object for cool, detached, scientific observation and evaluation. God is one who came to have a relationship with us and has provided the most beautiful and incredible blessing for us. And what that needs to, every time we open the Scriptures, whether that would be here, whether that would be in your own Bible study at home, whether it would be in a Bible study with other people, there should also be, always be coming out of that worship and praise because it's not just for information. It's for adoration because remember, for Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So, here's what we're going to do. We have considered what is genuine worship all about? What does it look like? We've considered how coming out of understanding more information, which we've come to understand more here together, that there needs to be praise and, and worship. doesn't mean it always has to happen even right here, but it has to happen. But we want to help you along with that even now. And so what we're going to do is the, the praise team is going to come back and we're going to sing. We're going to take just a few extra minutes than what we normally would to sing. And I just want to invite you to consider these things that we have been talking about here. That genuine worship doesn't require full understanding. Might be something going on in your life today where you're like, you know what? It just doesn't feel right 
the circumstances going on. I don't get why they're there, and so I feel this disconnect to God. There's no reason that we need to because sometimes God works beyond our understanding, and that's not a negative. That's simply understanding the fact that we have a finite mind, and He's doing something bigger and greater. That's the promise that He has given to us. The genuine worship is centered in humility, that it means allowing myself to get swept up in what is being sung in the lyrics that are on the screen, allowing ourselves to not hold on to this pride that says, I, 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 have, to, I have to be in control. I have to be the one who is controlling exactly what's going on in my head and in my heart, and, and I can't give myself over to contemplation of God and just entering in because I've got to be in control. That genuine worship focuses on who God is, your circumstances don't have to be all exactly where you would have them to be to enter in because of God's mercy and His grace and His love and His hope that He has provided for us. That's reason enough to fully enter in. And the genuine worship should spring from all study of the Bible. We've looked at it. To just leave it as information that is filling our minds is to walk out missing the opportunity to give praise and glory to God. It's missing what He is calling us to do. So we're not going to do that. We're going to take a moment here. We just wanted to assist you in this with a few songs. And it won't take all that long, and it really shouldn't matter if it does. But I just want to invite you to put on this posture of what we're talking about and to allow yourself to be drawn in to what the Spirit of God would be doing in your life and in your heart and in your mind and that you would just enter in and that you would sing and you would lift up your voices. That you would lift up your song, maybe lift up your hands, just lift up your praise to God and fully enter in. Not sort of keeping a little distance like maybe is your, what you're accustomed to in worship, but to just fully enter in so that the glory might be His, because all things are from Him and through Him and our worship to Him. So we praise Him for His goodness and His glory. Father, thank You for these moments in Your Word and what Paul is teaching us about what it means to lift our voices in praise and to give You honor and glory. And we do that now, together, with one voice and one heart, to adore Your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. We're going to sing. We're going to praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. Pray.
Heavenly Father, we worship you today. We worship you for the powerful name of Jesus. We worship you for the powerful work of Jesus on our behalf. He came into our world. He died on our behalf for our sin that it might be taken away, rose victoriously over sin, over death, over the grave, to give us hope, to give us life. That is the essence of the gospel message, that your grace has been extended, that your mercy is ours, that we can receive that message, that we can receive that powerful name, that we can receive that life through your Son, Jesus, whose name we come to praise, whose name we come to lift up. It is a wonderful name. It is a beautiful name. It is a powerful name. And Lord, may it be one that fills our spirit, that fills our heart, that we can't possibly look into your word, that we can't look in and study and not just be filled as Paul with praise. 
with celebration, with recognizing your goodness and your greatness and your glory. Lord, may we not be people who would just see that and just sit idly by, that we wouldn't be moved to strong affirmation, to strong response and exclamation and strong praise. Lord, thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love that you have extended to us for all who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And friend, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus, if this is not your experience, we would love to pray with you before you go. We would love to talk to you about what it means to take on all of what Jesus has provided for us, to experience that grace and that glory and that mercy through the gospel. Before you go, stop us. We would love to talk with you about what that means. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for all of what we recognize that you have done, that Paul has expressed to us in bringing us to the place where praise would just burst forth. And Lord, may that be the case as we go from this place. It doesn't have to be through song. It doesn't have to be through music. It doesn't have to be through lyrics. You can just be that which overflows from our heart because of the gratitude that is there. Father, we give you that now. We offer ourselves fully and completely to you, grateful for the fact that you've offered yourself fully and completely to us, even through the death of Jesus, whose name is wonderful, whose name is beautiful, whose name is powerful. It's in his name that we pray. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen indeed.